Crime Salad listeners, we're your hosts, Ashley and Ricky, and we're here with another episode of Crime Salad. If this is your first time, welcome. Before we begin, we would like to give a shout out to our very first Patreon, Brooke. Thank you, Brooke. Yeah, thanks, Brooke. And also, check out our Patreon. You can find a direct link on our website or at patreon.com slash crime salad podcast. Members like Brooke get a shout out on an episode behind-the-scenes look at current cases, and we're just getting started, so we're hoping to add more things like bonus episodes and merch. If you would like to support Crime Salad, share our podcast with a friend and give us a five-star review on iTunes or any platform you listen to podcasts on. Today's episode is a story about the murder of a 19-year-old young woman by the name of Jessie Blodgett. Jessie was a very caring young woman, and was loved by her friends and family. She was known for being exceptionally gifted in music. She loved to play piano and violin. Jessie had many friends and surrounded herself with musically talented people just like herself. As a creative, inspiring young musician, she was often playing and writing music with good friends and dreamed to share her talent with the world. One of her very close friends was Daniel Bartelt, who was also very musically inclined. Kids that knew him in high school thought he was funny. He was always making jokes and was a good friend. These two had a very close connection, that boy-girl friendship. You know, the ones who sat next to each other in every class throughout high school. They also both happened to play the violin in the high school orchestra. Daniel was the first chair and Jesse was the second chair. The two had a lot in common and both decided to start dating in their sophomore year in high school. But in just four short months, it didn't seem to be working out as well as they thought. As Daniel broke things off, they would continue to stay friends. High school graduation was approaching, and the big decision was to be made. What to do after high school? As some of us may have followed the similar path, Jessie listened to her father's advice to pursue a more traditional career and to keep music and performing as more of a hobby. I feel like this is something like every creative person goes through. You know, they want to do something that's their dream, you know, something they're passionate about. And then they have their parent being like, yeah, but concentrate on something realistic and maybe, you know, do that on the side or, you know, Mm -hmm. in the future. Yeah. And, you know, you're so young right out of high school. There's so much pressure on kids, you know, planning out like what to do for the rest of their lives. You know, plus it's like you go to you go to college orientation and they have a list of things that you can do. They're like, oh, you could work on computers, like you could do sports management, you could be an English teacher. And it's like, okay, I I guess if I have to pick out of this box, I'll do sports management. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of pressure at such a young age. Taking her father's advice, Jesse enrolled into the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee but only attending for a short time before following her heart and transferring to Peck's School of the Arts and redirecting her focus towards sharing her gift by teaching music. At this time, Daniel and Jesse went their own separate ways once they both started college. 
Daniel attended the main campus of the University of Wisconsin, which is about an hour and a half away. While Jesse stayed at home attending the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee branch in their hometown. While attending school, she started her own business at her parents' house teaching piano, voice, and violin lessons to children and young adults. Soon her dream was beginning to take shape and her life was starting to unfold like she imagined. The year was 2013. Jessie came home from running errands and told her parents Daniel had dropped out of college and was on his way back home. This struck her parents as a surprise because Daniel was a straight-A student and he was very bright. It's possible that Daniel was feeling the same about following his dreams as Jesse did. Daniel was very gifted in the performing arts. While back at home, he starred in the main role in the play Bye Bye Birdie. Now that Daniel was home, Daniel and Jesse rekindled their friendship. They were making songs together all the time. One of the songs they titled Jesse and Dan Bartelt Demo, where you can still find it on YouTube. The emotion-driven song has an eerie piano playing loudly, with a distant vocal in the background beautifully sung by Jesse. It creates a beautiful, yet haunting atmosphere. It gives me chills just listening to it. Around this time, Jesse auditioned and was cast as the Fiddler in Fiddler on the Roof. A few weeks later, it was opening night, and the show was a success. Following the show, Jesse attended the cast party with friends. Jesse is seen in a video we came across looking a little uneasy as two older men were talking to her. She went home that night and took notes in her diary, writing, I think I'm being corrupted. I think certain men are taking what should be platonic love and perverting it into a competition. And Jesse also writes, I am not helpless. I will recognize problems and confront them without fear. God be with me. But what Jesse doesn't know is this would be her last night on earth. The next morning, Jesse talked to her parents about how the cast party went before they left for work. She also mentioned the two older men who were talking to her. Her mom and dad left for work, and later that morning, Jessie's mom came by the house on her lunch break. As she was home, there was a knock at the door. It was one of Jessie's students stopping over for a lesson. Her mom kept calling for her and starting to get mad because she wasn't answering, and even more upset that she wasn't prepared for the lesson. She then goes into Jessie's room and touches her arm to wake her up. But something sent chills down her spine. Jessie was cold. As soon as she realizes Jessie is not waking up and something is wrong, she quickly dials 911. What you're about to hear is the actual recording of the call she made. I have to warn you, this next clip is not easy to listen to. Harper 901, what's your emergency? <laughs> my daughter is blue. I went to wake her up, and I just got home from, from lunch, and she won't wake up. 
wake up. She's oh 19. my God. Okay. okay. Hang on just a second. Okay. Okay. So is she, is she breathing? I don't think so. No. Okay, ma'am. Do you know how to do CPR? Jessie. <laughs> you do. Do you know how to do CPR, ma'am? She's cold. She's cold. She's cold. She's cold. Oh my God. Oh my God. She's cold. Okay. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Her pants are all wet and she's got. It looks like strangulation marks. There are strangulation marks. That's what it looks like. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. Honey, what happened to you? No. No. Honey, no. No. Jessie was found by her mother. Her hair and her clothes were wet. Her skin was blue and cold to the touch ligature marks on her wrist, ankles, and neck. When police arrive, they suspect this was a homicide. Her body was staged. It appeared to police that her body was washed and placed in bed covered up. Whoever did this to Jessie had to have known the family's whereabouts as well as Jessie's. Police determined there was no forced entry into the home, so police didn't have to look too far. There could only be a few knowing suspects. What about the older guys at the cast party? People who were there mentioned there was a weird vibe going on that night. A witness, who was also one of Jesse's friends, stated she remembers an older guy forcefully pulling Jesse onto his lap. Could the journal entry Jesse wrote be about the same incident her friend saw? It seems like a huge red flag that just the day after the cast party, Jesse was killed. The guy was found by police and they bring him in for questioning. Suspiciously, he didn't show up for work the day Jesse was killed. They continue with questions about Jesse. However, he is cleared pretty quickly. Police feel like they didn't have their guy. The case was still open and the search for the killer continued. The cast party guy definitely seems suspicious, but this murder seems to be premeditated, so it would have to be someone that knows the house or, like we mentioned before, knows everyone's whereabouts, unless the guy at the cast party knew Jesse more than what we know. I mean, could the guy have followed her home after the party to see where she lived, though? I mean, Jesse seems like a pretty strong-willed girl, but I don't know. Maybe the fact that Jesse wasn't interested triggered the guy to attack her. You know, plus the police cleared him so quickly. Could they have missed something? Yeah, they definitely could. But this case isn't over yet. With a crime scene left like this, there would have to be DNA evidence at the scene. And you know another thing that's strange? Not too far from Jesse's home is a small town about 12 miles away in Richfield, Wisconsin. Just three days before Jesse's murder, a rare attack happened at a local park. A young woman named Melissa Eltzer was walking her dog at a local park, when she was tackled from behind by a man with a knife attempting to stab her. Luckily, she was able to escape from the attack and contact the police right away. She explained that she was just about to leave the park in the morning when she heard footsteps behind her and could feel someone following her. She looked behind her and saw a guy, but just thought this was a random guy acting strange. As he was getting closer and closer to her, she realized he had a knife. 
We're going to take a quick break here to tell you about BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online service that I personally use for my mental health. They provide a number of professional licensed counselors who specialize in all situations that may be interfering with your happiness. It's seriously my personal outlet to get my mind right. It's affordable. It's so convenient. I decided to give BetterHelp a shot when I was going through a very anxious part of my life. So I just signed up and I was matched with an amazing counselor who was so willing to talk with me right away. We actually set up a video chat later in the week to catch up. We are all so busy. Give yourself the care that you need today. Start living a happier life. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash crime salad. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash crime salad. Police and Melissa return to the park where it all happened. Melissa says she remembers hitting the ground on her stomach as he was on top of her. She held onto the blade of the knife with her hand as they were both fighting for it. She was doing everything she could to fight for her life. Melissa was a strong, athletic woman, and soon the attacker was giving up. He looked her dead in the eye and said, Can I just go? He asked for the knife back, but Melissa wasn't letting go. She knew it could be used against him. Not only did she fight him off her, she knew every little detail of what he looked like. She described to the police the attacker was a white male, 18 to 20 years of age, 6'2", 210 pounds. He had light blonde hair and very fair skin. She even noted that he wore plaid shorts. She said he drove a dark blue Dodge Caravan, but wasn't quite sure of the year and knew it was an older style. That's a very detailed description for someone who was just recently attacked. And for this young woman to not give up a fight is truly amazing. Police released the description of the suspect in a composite of the sketch. Once this information was public, police were expecting calls to start coming in. A police officer saw this information and reported seeing a car matching the description that was made public. He says he took down the license plate number of the car parked in the same spot months ago. The police used this number to run the plates and find out the owner of the car did not match the description of the young man at the scene. The car was actually owned by a middle-aged couple. So police contact the owners of the vehicle, and when speaking with police, they were surprised to admit the description seemed to perfectly match their son telling police their son is 20 years old, roughly 6'1", and around 200 pounds. The parents willingly cooperated with police by giving them their son's cell phone number. Once the police have his number, they call him immediately. On the other end, the boy's phone rings unexpectedly. The police ask him to come down to the station for questioning. While he agreed right away, no questions asked or with any hesitation whatsoever, his only reply was, oh, okay, I'll be right there. While still on the phone, the police asked where he was. He told them he was at Jesse Blodgett's vigil. Once they got off the phone, police were a bit thrown off as to why he never asked what he was needed at the station for, or what any of this was about. Okay, so let's take a step back. What are the chances a suspiciously parked vehicle that the police reported weeks ago 
is now linking to a young man with the same description that Melissa gave after she was attacked, and the suspect also knowing Jesse Blodgett. I mean, this could definitely be a coincidence, but things are getting more and more strange with this case. At this point, Jesse Blodgett's case was all over the news, and police were well aware of the recent murder. However, their main focus was to find out who attacked Melissa Etzer at the park. While at the vigil, the suspect who was like family to the Blodgetts was reminiscing and mourning the loss of Jesse with friends and family. After the call with police, he announced to Jesse's family and friends that he was called down to the station. On his way out, Jesse's dad gave Daniel a hug and told him they will be questioning all of Jesse's friends and not to worry too much about it. Yes, you heard that right. The suspect attending Jesse's vigil is Daniel Bartelt, the same young man who was best friends with Jesse. It's important to note here at this time, Daniel had Jesse's family's full support. When he arrives, police ask Daniel why he thinks he was brought down to the station. He tells police, probably for the questioning of Jesse Blodgett's murder. And even though this was not why they asked him to come down, they ask him what he thinks happened to Jesse. And without hesitation, he confidently tells police he thinks someone raped and murdered her. This was alarming to police because they were only a few days into the investigation and no indications of her being raped were even mentioned or made public. This is where police believe Daniel slipped up. Getting back on subject, police asked Daniel a series of questions about the attack on Melissa in the park. After some time, Daniel confesses to attacking Melissa in the park. He claimed he had a lot going on in his life right now, and with his recent decision to drop out of college and move back home, he just wanted someone else to feel the pain that he was feeling. So police began to wonder, if Daniel could attack an innocent girl in the park, could he also be responsible for killing Jesse a few days after the attack? I mean, could Daniel really have killed his best friend? At this time, Daniel was taken into custody for his attack on Melissa in the park. But police are suspicious he may also be responsible for the murder of Jesse Blodgett, and they need to spend more time with him for questioning. Police ask Daniel a second time what he thinks happened to Jesse. This time, Daniel is more careful with his reply and simply tells police he has no idea what happened to her. During their questioning with Daniel, he would appear to cry hysterically and put on quite a show for police. Now, you have to remember, Daniel is an extremely bright kid and a trained actor, but police are trained to identify these types of behaviors. One of the officers pointed out, when questioning Daniel directly about his relationship with Jesse, he would sob uncontrollably, but he would never shed an actual tear. So now, police need to figure out where Daniel was during Jesse's murder. Further into questioning, he admits him and Jesse did reconnect once he was back home from college, and their relationship was romantic. But he said they were keeping it a secret because he was actually dating someone else. As far as his alibi goes, he claims he was driving around in his parents' van, pretending to be at work the day Jesse was murdered. But instead of going to work, he actually drove to Woodland Park, where he was writing a series of short stories that he had been creating. The stories were about a fictional character named Jessica, 
a young girl who would eventually be murdered in his story. Daniel's case is quickly piling up against him, and police are convinced that he killed Jesse. But Daniel completely denies any involvement whatsoever. Police have no doubt he's the killer, and begin to press harder for him to confess. Daniel loses his emotional tone, and as police feel like they are just about to get him the crack, Daniel requests a lawyer. Being the police could only go off of what they got from Daniel during the interview, they didn't have a lot. Following up with Daniel's alibi, police pull the surveillance footage at Woodland Park. And sure enough, Daniel was telling the truth about where he was that day. In the surveillance footage at Woodland Park, he's seen carrying a cereal box and disposing it in a trash bin. Police then obtain warrants, allowing them to confiscate Daniel's personal laptop and conduct a full search on it, hoping to find some clues or a possible motive. Searching his computer, they find a series of pornography, including disturbing videos, including hog tying and extreme bondage. Evidence of these techniques were also apparent where Jesse was murdered. With all this evidence, police believe Jesse was hogtied, gagged, and raped before being strangled to death. And then after she was dead, taken to the bathroom, bathed, and then returned to the bed she was killed in. Police drive to the spot where Daniel was seen in the security footage and investigate the trash can. They find a cereal box, and stuffed inside the cereal box is a ball gag, rope, and alcohol wipes. With a full investigation on Daniel and his belongings, the same rope is found in his garage, matching perfectly with the size of the ligature marks found on Jesse's neck. Further in the investigation, they find a roll of tape under Jesse's bed with Daniel's fingerprints on it, used to tape the ball gag in Jesse's mouth. The same type of tape was also found in Daniel's basement and left behind at the attack happening to Melissa in the park. Daniel's DNA is also found under Jesse's fingernails. The family find it hard to believe that Daniel could have done this, especially when he had the nerve to attend Jesse's vigil. They appeared as such good friends, and they wrote songs together just weeks before. Maybe this is where his good acting skills came into play. Maybe the story he was writing of the fictional character was more of a plan to murder Jesse. But why would he even tell the police when it clearly reflects what was happening to his friend? I still don't understand why he would even do this to Jesse. He was such good friends with her. It's hard to tell how long he was planning this for. Some people believe that this was a disturbing fantasy that Daniel played out, which leads people, like Jesse's dad, believing he's a sociopath. And this is where the trial begins. Daniel never fully confesses to the murder of Jesse. In court, he's given a chance to say a few words. Daniel speaks in front of the court, including Jesse's family and friends and his family, sounding very apologetic for their loss. When you listen to him speak in court, it sounds like it's almost a part of a play. Buck, Joy, I can't give you the answers that you're looking for. You say how you count the days and the hours, and I do too. I have every day. There's no hiding from yourself in a tiny concrete cell. 
I have a disgustingly innate ability to lie to myself that I've exercised far too many times in my life. But I refuse to hurt someone other than myself by doing that. This jumpsuit that I'm wearing, these shackles that I'm put in, don't make me guilty. And I know there's evidence that I can't refute that would make you believe that I am guilty. This guy just makes my skin crawl. I couldn't imagine how the family felt in the courtroom. Based on all of the evidence found by police, Daniel's DNA found on the scene, and the disturbing searches found on his computer, the trial did not last long. This case arises from two crimes committed in July 2013, including the attack of Melissa Eltzer and the murder of Jesse Blodgett. Daniel faces four felony counts in all, two counts of first-degree intentional homicide, one count of first-degree recklessly endangering safety, and one count of false imprisonment. Daniel was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Jesse's family was heartbroken for the loss of their loved one. Jesse's father, Buck, even forgave Daniel, which I feel would be very hard to even say to the person who killed your own daughter. In this dark, depressing point of Jesse's family's lives, her dad starts an organization called the Love is Greater Than Hate Project. This is a nonprofit, and their dual mission is to end violence against girls and women and have all people inspired, educated, and motivated to choose love over hate. So this concludes the story of Jesse Blodgett. If you're interested in learning more about this case, you can find pictures of Jesse on our website at crimesaladpodcast.com and also on our Instagram at crimesaladpodcast. Help support Crime Salad by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember to follow us on Instagram and be sure to tell a friend about Crime Salad. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you again. Crime Salad is a true crime podcast delivering a healthy portion of crime. Crime Salad is a weird salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. All the blood, blood, all the pain, pain. All the blood, blood, all the pain, pain.